Well, good morning again. Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to the 15th chapter of the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 15. I'm going to read uh, just a few verses for us, verses 15 through 19, and I'll pray for us and we can get started. Father, we know that your word, it's a fountain of living water. It's the only thing in the world that can satisfy us. But we all came here this morning distracted by other things that we think are going to satisfy us, by creating cisterns that simply will not hold that living water. And I know I'm the foremost among them. I pray that you would forgive us for that, that you would banish those distractions from our minds and from our hearts, and that you would really speak to us and that we would leave this morning changed. We trust you to do that in your name. Amen. Let me read verses 15 through 19 for us from Jeremiah chapter 15. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance on me for, my, for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I didn't sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. And if you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. I am careening into middle age this week. And I'm doing it with great gusto and enthusiasm with a ton of hope for the future. But when I think back over what I hope will be just my half-life, if there's anything that I've seen that I'm certain of, I have seen the meteoric rise of the memoir. I have seen memoirs, by memoir I mean the genre of literature, memoir, jump a million spots in books that people prefer to read. When I was in grade school, I was taught about fiction, and I was, not, and I was taught about nonfiction, and I was taught about mystery, and I was taught about suspense, and I knew Stephen King was the godfather of horror, but memoir was nowhere to be found. I had no idea what that was. Now, in the last few years, I've read a few memoirs. I've read some good ones, and I've read some bad ones. And about a year ago, I, I read one that was so bleak, and the details of the memoir were so horrific, and all of them were so utterly self-imposed that I swore off the genre forever. I decided I'll never read another one again. But... In that process, I found a book about memoirs. Seven years ago, there was a book published called Memoir, colon, A History. 
by a gentleman named Ben Yagoda. Now, I am extremely eager to be able to tell you that I did not read Memoir, A History, but I read a longish review of that book in Harper's or something. So Daniel Mendelssohn is the reviewer, and he told me in this review that actually something profound is going on here. Something profound is going on with the rise of the memoir, and it actually, believe it or not, has a lot to do with God. Mendelssohn reminded us that actually the first Western memoirist was a man by the name of Aurelius Augustinus. I can't say that because he's known to me and to you simply as St. Augustine. And he wrote a book called The Confessions. And Augustine's book in the 4th century, Augustine was of course a North African bishop, he wrote in the 4th century, and his book started by confessing a small, minor, juvenile peccadillo that haunted him for the rest of his life. He told the story of a little misdemeanor he had committed when he was a child where he saw a pear tree that had pears all over it, and he stole a pear and he ate it. But the problem with the peccadillo wasn't the simple act of theft. It was the fact that when Augustine reflected on it, he knew that he was neither hungry for a pear, nor did he care about pears in general, nor did the pear look good even a little bit. He just did it because it was bad. And that confession and what came out of it developed a memoir. It developed a man aching and searching for God, and it became a classic. Now, of course, the memoir gained steam. It didn't end with Augustine. It was prolific in the late, early Christian era. It became even more prolific in the Middle Ages. During the Reformation, the memoir boomed. One of the first books I ever read after I became a Christian was uh, John Bunyan's classic, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is a classic by anyone's standard, Christian or not. So what happened? Mendelssohn wants to know, and I want to know, why is the memoir no fun anymore? He says that that happened in the 18th century. And it happened back because of a French philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now, Rousseau, we all know, is the giant of the Enlightenment, this giant philosopher that ushered in the era of the Enlightenment. And Rousseau wanted to write his own memoir, but he wanted to do it different. He wasn't going to interact with God at all. He wasn't going to wrestle with God. He didn't want to know anything about the way his heart was going to interact with God. Rousseau wanted to wrestle only with himself. And so that's what he did. He wrestled with himself, and actually, despite the fact that he left God out of it, that book became a classic. But Mendelssohn says no one ever, 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 ever again achieved the height of Rousseau, and certainly no one ever again gained Augustine's status, and he says it this way. He says, once the memoir stopped being about God and started being about man, Once confession came to mean nothing more than getting a shameful secret off your chest, and maybe worse, once redemption came to mean nothing more than cozy 
acceptance offered by other people, many of whom might well share the same secret, it was but a short step to what is the motivating force behind certain other products of the recent memoir craze, the belief that confession is therapeutic and therapy is redemptive and redemption somehow equals art. Now, did you catch that? Once confession becomes separated from actual redemption from God, we've drifted into some seriously sophomoric, voyeuristic drivel. That's what Mendelssohn says is the, prob- is the problem of the memoir in our time. Now, there's an Eastern man, right, that came way before... Augustine, and he did a memoir too. And it's this book that we've been walking through together for the last however many months or two months or whatever, it's, and it's Jeremiah, right? He's exposed us to his interior life. We've seen him speak prophetic judgments to any number of people. We've seen him hear words directly from God, but we haven't really gotten a clear look at him in personal prayer or maybe in the posture a memoir would put him in. And so in Jeremiah 15, what we gain is access to someone who knew that God isn't something or someone simply to be talked about. For Jeremiah, God was somebody that had to be contended with. And to be contended with in the exact place that him as the human being, Jeremiah, connected to God was in pain. So this is a dialogue, right? If you read the entirety of chapter 15, Jeremiah talks, God listens. God talks back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah listens. And what comes out, I think, if you wanted to kind of just give a very simple, very contemporary theme to the memoir of Jeremiah, it's just simply the theme of loneliness, right? He feels abandoned by God. He feels abandoned by his people, and he isn't at all sure where to turn. And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning. Just very simply, Jeremiah's loneliness. I want to ask, where does it come from? What does it look like for him? And then we can ask about our loneliness, and we can say, how is any of it remedied? If you look at verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah chapter 15, you begin to see Jeremiah talking about God's word coming to him and being something that was all his delight. God's word became for Jeremiah everything. It was his daily bread. It was his fountain of living waters. And because God's word was all Jeremiah's delight, Jeremiah was happy to sit alone, he says. He was happy to find total solitude. Now, when you think about that, though, when you think about that happening in Jeremiah's life, God's word coming to him, becoming a delight to him, forcing him into solitude, you really need to think about that almost all in one moment. This isn't necessarily a cycle. This is a moment early in Jeremiah's life. God calls Jeremiah and says, you're going to go out to my people and you're going to speak to them. And Jeremiah hears that. He hears a word directly from God and hope dawns. God's word comes to him and he says, I see the suffering of my people and this word could be 
their remedy, not just a temporary remedy. This could be an eternal remedy. All of the heartache and trouble that the division of Judah and Israel felt, all of the impending disaster that came from militaries all over and around them, that could end because God's word was going to come in and he was going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And they were going to worship one God again and pain that wasn't going to be anymore. But then we heard it, right? We heard the rest of the story. Reality set in. God's word came to Jeremiah and it made him happy, but he sent him in one direction and Israel and everyone else went the other way. And so Jeremiah developed a loneliness. Now his loneliness, of course, is like the most righteous kind, right? Jeremiah's loneliness is totally righteous. It's without stain or blemish. It comes from him following God's word despite the circumstances and despite the consequences. And your loneliness might be like that, right? Your loneliness, the loneliness you've experienced in your life through circumstance or whatever may have come because you made Jesus your all and you pledged total allegiance to him and you've done nothing but follow him and your family has abandoned you and your friends have abandoned you. I know people exist like that, but I suspect that's not many of you. And I can tell you that that's not the reason loneliness has happened to me. But loneliness of any kind is in play in Jeremiah chapter 15, right? God knows that we feel that way for any number of different reasons. We've heard people say our whole lives that they can walk into a room full of people and feel lonely. But we also feel and experience loneliness through death. We experience loneliness when relationships change. We experience loneliness when we've hurt other people through sin and that fractures a relationship. And the problem with loneliness is it feels like the only solution to loneliness is not to be alone anymore. And sometimes that's not that easily remedied. There was a famous uh, Dutch psychiatrist named J.H. Vanderberg who said that loneliness is actually the nucleus of psychiatry. And if loneliness didn't exist, we could reasonably assume that psychiatric illness wouldn't occur either. Humans connect to other humans at so basic a level as though, so that when we disconnect, our souls shatter into a thousand pieces. One is, of course, the loneliest number there will ever be. <laughs> and that experience is the saddest experience we will ever know. Three Dog Night was right, weren't they? I've known that feeling, I confess to you, and so have you. We've all felt that isolation that a harsh word from a spouse can bring, or the loneliness that our sins, like we said, can bring us, the feeling of exclusion because of our socioeconomic status or our gender or our race or whatever. We felt loneliness because of our singleness. We felt it because of our childlessness. We felt loneliness around our children because of the way that they're acting. It does not matter the source. Loneliness is an agony, the likes of which nothing else produces. And loneliness is painful, of course, because it is literally alien to who we are. 
We were meant for companionship because we were meant, we were actually created in the image of God, the one who has eternally been in fellowship with himself. We were meant to indwell one another, our lives always intertwined and connected and dependent. And when we don't make room for one another, we despair and we drift into that unbelievable sadness. For Jeremiah, that loneliness came because he tried to make room for Israel. He wanted to make room in his heart for them. He wanted to be available to Israel. He knew that his availability to Israel meant that God could break into their life and change them. And so he opened himself up to them again and again and again, and they rejected him. It seems to me that the great project of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry was simply the project of availability. It was a broken, painful effort to make himself available to Israel and to pour down God's word on them. To love them so much that he simply could not endure God's wrath towards them without constant and unceasing approachment towards them. An approachment that called them to a reconnection with the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, the calling and the vocation of any prophet. Now somehow, the title of prophet has gotten changed in our era. And its meaning and definition has gotten altered to look like the unfeeling, intentionally isolated individual that simply shouts at you. But that's virtually the opposite of the, of the portrait that the Bible paints of Jeremiah. Prophecy for him was that availability and availability in Jeremiah's world in a word was simply love. It was a project that aimed to destroy the basic result that sin caused, which was hiding and loneliness. Loneliness is totally for real, y'all. And it sends us into all sorts of places to find satisfaction for it that are never going to make us feel unlonely. I heard... I guess I say this, maybe the most memorable sermon I've ever heard, or um, maybe just the most memorable sermon I've ever heard in this room, and it was preached by a friend of mine that you all know. And the sermon came from the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, and the text is this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to do nothing from partiality. And at the end of the sermon, David, without need for rhetorical flourish or a ton of explanation, said, don't you dare show partiality. Don't ever, ever, ever show partiality. Because this is the one thing in this Bible that Paul says God is looking on and seeing. The elect angels are looking on and seeing. Not the moralism you're so proud of. Not the all the other things that God, you think God loves about you. The fact that you wouldn't dare show partiality. And so if I can be a copycat and riff on my friend and say what he said, maybe you could say, Don't you dare blaspheme the triune God by failing to let his people indwell you and you indwell them. 
Don't contribute to someone's loneliness and affect a further feeling of alienation because it almost killed Jeremiah and it almost killed God's people. But we're talking about hospitality, right? That's what ends and banishes loneliness. But for the Bible, real hospitality is not absolute hospitality. We don't invite the naked into our homes so that we can gawk at their nakedness. We don't invite the hungry into our homes so that we can make them watch us eat. That would, of course, only exacerbate the loneliness that Jesus intends to eradicate and destroy, and it'll make you more lonely too. And so Jeremiah, if that's what he's saying, he turns the contemporary memoir on its head. And he gives us a portrait of a man that's obsessed with God and obsessed with the wholeness of God's people. Nakedness for him had to be clothed and the hungry had to be fed and those living in sin had to be gently brought to repentance in order that they would find a real home. One where people feed and clothe them both physically and spiritually. And in Jeremiah's agony, to that end, he developed one of the most complex and compelling interior lives of prayer that had ever existed. And he had to have it, right? Because people are going to reject your availability like they did his. People are going to reject your hospitality and your words of comfort. And you're going to need hospitality at times and it's not going to be made available but in those moments you can be like Jeremiah and pray and you can pray as boldly as your heart can loneliness and rejection are givens that's a fixed entity right but being bold enough to pray those things that takes the work of an absolute spiritual giant I'll close with this when when I was in middle school this is going to maybe date me when I was in middle school, uh, the worst thing that you could be called was a poser, right? I remember shuddering at the social destruction that was coming to people when I saw them get called a poser. If you dressed like you skateboarded and carried one around but weren't proficient at its most rudimentary and elementary tricks, you were bound to get called a poser. If your mommy bought you a nice guitar for Christmas and you paraded it around your house when your friends were over but couldn't simply play Iron Man by Black Sabbath, you were definitely going to get called a poser. Understand, I know that was all bullying before any of you get triggered. None of that should have ever been said. I'm only using this as an illustration. You can be a poser at prayer too, though, it seems to me. We can mumble out a few words before a meal. We can memorize prayers. We can stammer out something predictable at life group. But only the kind of prayer that Jeremiah was willing to pray will make us whole again. We don't get there by posing as victorious Christians, never brought low by our interior life or the world. But listen, when we spurn those cut flower prayers, the memoir is redeemed because there's no, nothing more human than seeing the heart of a woman or a man engage God in this way. Praying that way, I think, will make God real to us. 
if you pray that way, you will hear the resonant voice of God. And when we do that, we're all going to be healed. We all know that our relationship with God, whether it looks like it did for Jeremiah or not, is under constant assault. Life is moving and dynamic. It's changing and it's growing and it will drive and drive and drive and drive and drive against our belief in the simple truths of the gospel. But it's all of that that needs to be brought before God. Resolving to be a more stalwart Christian, that's never going to work because we all have to be renewed. I don't believe that you can leave those encounters unchanged. Unchanged. Jesus, he destroys and vanishes loneliness. Maybe not in an instant, but in his time, and the entire Godhead is wrapped up in that act. And as those painful things begin to diminish in our life, I think the work of God is displayed to a really broken world. Let's pray together. Father, we trust that that's true. And honestly, we feel for Jeremiah. He's been dead a long time. But he had an agonizing and lonely life. And we relate to him just in measure. But we know what it feels like to be disconnected from you, to be abandoned by you. We know what it feels like to feel abandoned by the people that we need most. And so now, as we turn towards this table, I pray that you would begin to break that feeling and that pain in our hearts. That your son would come so close to us this morning. That he would nourish us spiritually and that you would grow us in his likeness by the power of your spirit. In your name I pray. Amen.